How many of you ever heard of the iconoclastic controversy? I imagine you have in history. An icon is a bas-relief, a raised image, a sort of a half of a figure that is etched in stone or could be cast in concrete, and rather than a totally separate figurine or an idol, it is only half of the idol, and just like a part of the wall. Anciently, the patriarch over in Constantinople and some of the Grecian islands, uh, Catholics of the major religion of that time, the Universal Church, began to believe in only icons. And they saw some evil in statuary because they believed that might actually break the spirit of the law of the second commandment, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. An image was a totally separate statue. Now, in the Western Church, they believed that the statue was not the efficacious thing, but it was only a representation. It was not God. They said, we don't bow down the statue. That's not what we're worshiping. It just reminds us of St. Christopher or St. Helena or whatever, and it is only a representation of the God or the saint or the holy person to whom we look. So believe it or not, the great universal church, the Roman Catholic Church, and what is today the Greek Orthodox Church, split right down the middle over a decades-long, and really, in a sense, a centuries-long struggle and an argument over one of the most important questions in the world to them, whether or not you ought to have a church service in front of an icon, or whether you ought to have a church service with a full-bodied statue up here behind you on the stage. The history of why churches have split is one of the most sickeningly hilarious, ironic, sad travesties that you've ever heard in your life. Many churches within probably less than two miles of where we are today would say that we are indulging in something absolutely pagan. On the one hand, they would have approved what happened today because we didn't have a piano player or a song leader. But I doubt if they would tolerate this instrument up here. Because that instrument, they would say, is of Satan the devil. The Church of Christ. Different churches have gotten into fantastically intricate reasonings and theological arguments and biblical research over whether or not you ought to have musical instruments as a part of your spiritual service. Churches have divided over whether women ought to speak in service or preach or be ordained. They have divided over various liturgical ceremonies. They have divided over whether or not you take the wafer round or square, whether you use salt or a feather, whether you shake the bell three times or twice. They get all excited about hemlines and about makeup and whether different little things are sins or not. Now today, one of the great reasons that keep the Church of God Seventh Day and the Church of God International seemingly at arm's length, so that the Church of God Seventh Day is not about to begin to support, to stand back of, to be a part of, and to help financially the effort of preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God as a witness and a warning, as I said last Sabbath, that is being done out of Tyler, Texas. And the one major thing that kind of re retains this arm's length posture is what we're going to do tomorrow. Go up to Mineola, I'm going to be, God willing, in Oklahoma City, and observe Pentecost, a holy day, one of the feast days of God. I got a letter from one of the ministers of that organization recently, and he was elated to have read a recent article in the Worldwide News written by one of our young men out in the West Coast who was down at uh, Arcadia, then I think he went up to Central California, and it had to do with the entire subject of the Hebrew calendar. It was very well researched. It had gone into the Jewish encyclopedia under the article calendar, and you probably read it all. It was very well done indeed, and it showed that even way, way back from the earliest days that the Jews, in dealing with basically an imperfect calendar, had to make certain adjustments, and it was given into the hands of the responsible leaders of the community in the Old Testament, as it was in the temple, the hands of the Jews who, as Jesus said, sat in Moses' seat in the New Testament to determine what would be the time of the annual festivals, when they would come around and when they were to be observed. Now, this gentleman was elated to see this technically detailed, thoroughly researched proof in this article that showed the rather chancy, you might say, 
uh, sometimes erroneous, but nevertheless authorized method of the Jewish priesthood to determine when these holy days were to be kept. And he was really encouraging me to give up the holy days and to remove this barrier between the Church of God International and the Church of God Seventh Day, and then we could all be together. Well, now, doesn't it occur to people, and wouldn't it occur to you, that if the problem is that a certain method was used by the hierarchy under the Old Covenant, and a certain method was used by those in charge of the temple during the time of Jesus Christ to determine when Passover would be kept, what was the first day of unleavened bread, how to count Pentecost, when do we observe the Feast of Trumpets, when does the Feast of Tabernacles begin, that the methods they used then were just exactly the same as the methods that are used today, that nothing is different. The patterns of the heavenly bodies, of the sun, the moon, the earthly journey or the annual journey of the earth around the sun is identical as it was then. Doesn't it occur to people that if that is the reasoning they're going to use, since we have now determined that there were certain inaccuracies in the Solomner Kalends and that they had to make a judgment and there was somebody in authority under the Old Covenant to say, this is when the Holy Day is going to be kept, therefore, don't you see, it was really a kind of an inaccurate system and therefore we really don't need to observe them today. Well, now, wait a minute. The same methods were used then that they are now. And what about God making provision for the second Passover? And what about Hezekiah's marvelous feast of unleavened bread and Passover, when they were cleansing and purifying, and the priests couldn't be cleansed until the second Passover came around, and they had the most marvelous Passover and eight days of the Passover and the days of unleavened bread in all of history, and the people rejoiced so much they kept yet seven other days in great rejoicing and great gladness, and God blessed them in so doing. Now, some of the great so-called anti-Holy Day proof texts that we're not to keep them are found in the book of Colossians and Ephesians, and I want to turn to Colossians, the second chapter, and to show you the misunderstandings, to show you how people will reason every conceivable way they can in some seemingly detailed, technical, intricate, difficult passage of the Bible to come up with what ought to be practice for the church and to show you what it is that divides various spiritual organizations. I've had people tell me who have sat in church 20, 25 years, have heard these scriptures expounded exactly as I'm about to expound them to you. I mean, take them apart, show them intricately, word by word, back and forth, through the Bible, sat there, took notes, went home, hey, I'm satisfied, closed up the Bible and the notebook and said, boy, he really made that clear, 1958, again in 1961, 63, 65, 67, 68, 71, 74. But along comes a terrible trauma that strikes the church, and here's a church that has maybe 85, maybe 92, maybe 98 percent of the truth, I don't know but a lot of the truth, just a whole lot of the truth of God, most of it. But then people become disappointed in people. They become hurt over the way the hierarchy acts. They become upset over monetary matters. They become disillusioned over politics. They become terribly upset over disfellowshipments and certain harsh practices. And so, because the years have gone by, and they have never really been scholars in the first place. And like a lot of us, they take a lot of notes, but they never look at them again. Like a lot of other people, they sleep their way through Sabbath services. And they did agree. They did think they saw it proved. It did seem right at the time. But I mean, that was 15 or 20 years ago. And how much do you remember from a sermon of 15 or 20 years ago, for pity's sake, when you can barely remember what was said last week? And so along come the hurt feelings, and I've had people tell me, people who have known, who have proved, who have taken notes, who I thought would be able to demonstrate to other people the truth of the holy days of God, have told me, well, I, I, really, uh, I really can't see that they ought to be kept anymore. And so they equate keeping the holy days of God 
with a kind of a hold of a church hierarchy over their lives. And instead of seeing that it was Almighty God they were obeying, that it is the Old and the New Covenant they're talking about, that it is Jesus Christ of Nazareth who was the head of the church, they think because a man says we're going to meet over here at such and such a date, they don't like that man anymore, therefore let's do away with the holy days. And of course, as I've said to people for twenty-some years, any one of these church organizations you want to talk about, whether it's the Mormons or the reorganized church of the Latter-day Saints, whether it's the Catholic Church or the Quaker Church, whether you're talking about the theories even of evolution and atheism, they are not, they are not the concoction of ignorant men. The leaders, the intellectuals, the intelligentsia of the Baptist Church, the Methodist Church, the Catholic Church are probably some of the sharpest, smartest, most intelligent human beings you will ever know. Many of them have several doctoral degrees. They're doctors of letters, doctors of philosophy, doctors of Middle Eastern languages, doctors in archaeology, and etc. They got LLDs and PhDs and LitDs and EdDs after their name a foot long, and they're intelligent men. That's why Jesus said, I thank thee, Father, that thou hast revealed these things unto babes. Any one of you, any time you get ready to decide, hey, I don't want to keep the holy days anymore. It's just too burdensome. It's too far to drive to Mineola. It takes a lot of gas. And you want to find an excuse, you can find a whole library full. You can go down to other churches and you can find books and pamphlets and they're going to sound so logical. Any day you want to get confused, you can say it's a good day to get confused, you can just go out and get confused. Any time you want to say, I don't believe we're Israel. You can purchase ten books in the same day that will try to disprove to you the so-called Anglo-Israel theory. Now, right to the core of Colossians, the second chapter, one of the favorite anti-Holy Day texts. But let's read up to it and see the context in what Paul is telling these Gentiles at Colossae. Chapter 2, beginning at about verse 6. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so live you, walk you, in him rooted and built up in him. Notice again that Paul and the apostles of God always pointed to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, not to themselves. They pointed to Christ. They say, be rooted in him, be grounded in him, live like he did, emulate him, imitate him, and established in the faith. Now, the faith that he uses there doesn't mean the kind of faith you need to be saved or the kind of faith you need to be healed. It really means body of beliefs. It means the doctrines of the church. The faith means the original truths of God as taught by the apostles, as delivered by Christ. As you have been taught. Now, when you've been taught and you've studied and you've taken the notes and you've proved it to yourself, it's like I've said time and again, I wish I had a blackboard sometimes because I could illustrate what I'm talking about. I used to do this in class all the time because oftentimes you can see people who will be painstakingly taken through, say, three cardinal points, three major arguments on a subject. And then you can insert some little ambiguous, tiny incidental, and they'll get this puzzled look on their face, and it's as if already they've forgotten these three cardinal points. Well, you know, you don't even build a building that way. You put down the foundation, you pour the concrete, and you put up the great big heavy members, and finally you're dealing with the roof and the cross members and your superstructure. And if you could have a blackboard and you could be staring at it in front of your eyes, it'd be like if you put it on your own notes, you wouldn't tend to forget it. It would still be sitting there. And I could take time out and tell you, now here's this little incidental point that does not really destroy the three cardinal points we've already put on the board. We've proved those, we've demonstrated those, we know those are true. Now because I, I put this little what if in here, and we try to explain this one rather ambiguous scripture, it doesn't erase these other three from the board. So once you have established something in your mind, once you've established it in your life, it is no longer a question. Don't misunderstand me when I say, if you can prove a doctrine once, you can prove it again. The second time you prove it, you're not any longer in doubt of it. The issue is no longer in doubt. You're not proving it because you don't believe it anymore. You're proving it again and again, the same way you did before, in order to prove it to others. And you need never be afraid to look into the Bible and to search for the truth and proof. Neither does any church organization need to be afraid 
of people who are willing to think for themselves, who are willing to do their own individual and independent research, who are willing to ask intelligent questions, and are willing to be taught. So when you've been rooted, when you've been built up in him, when you've been established in that body of doctrine, as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving, with gratitude. Now, one of the great sins is perhaps lack of gratitude, lack of thanksgiving. And one of the easiest things to overlook is merely being thankful for the truth that you know, for the truth of God, because you can't buy it. It is not for sale. It is something that Almighty God has to reveal to your mind by a process that is really miraculous. Now he goes on and begins to, to warn these new babes in Christ, the Gentile Christians, about men. We're going to see that theme repeated several times. It starts right here. Beware lest any man, now we're going to see that repeated several times, let no man, look out for men, beware lest a man spoil you. Through what? Philosophy. And oh, do we ever love that. A lot of people are. I'm, you know, there are a lot of religious fanatics in the world. They're religious hobbyists. There are people who run around and like to sample a little bit of everything available. I mean, if they could go to Nepal and take a picture of the prayer wheels, listen to the priests, they could go to the, listen to the cantor in the synagogue, they could go to the Catholic high mass, they could go hear the Methodists, go hear the Baptists, go read a little bit uh, with the Christian science people. Uh, they could go attend a seance, get in a little bit of witchcraft, just sample a little bit of all the religions, try to get a little bit of truth from everybody. And there are people like that in the world who run around and look at all of them. If you wanted to do that in Los Angeles, you would have a whole lifetime cut out for you and you still wouldn't be in, in and out of all the churches available advertised in just one Saturday church page. Philosophy. My idea. My thought, baby. My concept. My point of view. Men have philosophies because men desire followings, and because men want to justify their own position, and because of vanity, because of pomposity, because some people think they're very intelligent when really they're not very intelligent at all. So Paul warns these Gentiles, don't let men spoil you. Now, you know, when you pick up a piece of spoiled fruit and it's got these little gnats all over it and it's kind of ugly brown and skids a little on your hand when you pick it up, it's an awful sight. Sometimes it smells very, very bad. I imagine that's the way a Christian appears to God who allows himself to be spoiled. And the analogy has been made many times that one bad apple in the box is finally going to contaminate all the other apples. So eventually when one person is spoiled through philosophy and other vain doctrines and arguments and begins to believe something differently, well, he can't bottle it up. He's going to have to stand around during and after services and say, well, now what about this, and kind of gain a following and talk to people and say, well, I have this idea and try to get other people to justify his point of view. And the first thing you know, you have a little bit of a clique, a little party spirit, another little group here springing up that believes X, where you're preaching Y. And so the apostles of God always had to deal with that. And the New Testament literature is largely a catalog of how the apostles tried to keep the New Testament church free from error and free from attack, both from without and from within. And they did so unsuccessfully. They did not succeed, and the old argument, let God work it out, meaning God always works everything out exactly the way you want it to go, is one of the class A, triple A, you know, number one examples of stupidity I've ever heard in my life. Anyone who knows the New Testament or their Bible knows better than this idea, oh, just let God work it out. All that is required for evil men to succeed is for good men to do nothing. No, God's word demands courage. It demands action. It demands constant grooming and caretaking of the church. It demands that the ministry and the brethren themselves constantly be on their guard, and the literature of the New Testament, which are nothing more than letters to the churches sent into the hands of the ministers to be read and expounded in church, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After what? Now, what is the subject of Colossians 2? After the tradition of men, has nothing to do with the tradition of God, the laws of God, the Ten Commandments of God, or the holy days of God, or the Sabbath of God, but tradition of men, and the elements or rudiments. Now, the word rudiment, if something is rudimentary, something is elementary, it is base, basic and simple. Now, when he talks about the rudiments of the world, he's talking about crude, basic, earthy, mundane, simple things that human beings like to force other human beings into doing, ways of doing things 
which begins to form a kind of a liturgical, ceremonial method of religion and by which many people become enslaved, and not after Christ. I was conducting a Pentecost service up in Colorado in 1954, even before I was ordained. And I was ordained the next year, and we had, oh, I guess about 65 or 70 people, and they were in a tent on the property of Mr. Dwight Webster. Well, there was one of these guys there, he's probably long since dead because he was up in later middle age even then, and the world's, you know, traditional, proverbial, know-it-all loudmouth. He's standing around, you know, talking, and I guess he was chewing tobacco or something, using a little coarse language. Oh, yeah, he said, that, that there uranium, uh, he said, that's a destructive metal. And these, these farmers and sheep herders and, and people kind of gathered around this old guy. He's kind of entertaining, you know. He points up there an area where there aren't any trees. He said, see there? See, now right there is a deposit of uranium. Ain't no trees growing there. Well, if it's stupid, man, it just looked a little bit. He'd see him just a big rock face. There weren't any trees going to grow on that solid rock. But he knew, see, he was a, he'd graduated from Colorado School of Mines. Not really, but he probably, he just told, he was one of these guys that had to have an audience that had to have other people thinking he was important. And the thing that, that interested me was the way people flocked around him and just stood and listened and nodded, and, and he was going on and on about this theory about where uranium was up in these mountains. And old John Hill and I were there, and we just shook our head and talked about it. Later on, I had to go to that man and say, Now, look, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but if I hear you take God's name in vain just one more time, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. He didn't really belong there. And uh, he was just an old guy, you know, and wanted to see what was going on. But just one of these lessons that stuck in my mind, that people can come up with some of the stupidest ideas, and others will flock around, and they will listen. Sometime get Mr. Dart to tell you, maybe you can do it in a sermon, about probably the original soapbox orators of the whole world. And I mean some of the greatest of the world are found in Hyde Park in London, England. And they literally do take their box, and they stand up on it, and they start to preach. And here will be a whole crowd of people, and there will be a crowd of people, and down at the other end is another crowd of people. And it's nearly always on either religion or politics or the economy, mostly on religious philosophies. And these fellows are up there haranguing and waving their arms, and hardly any day of the week, but mostly on Sundays, I guess, you can drive by. And sometimes there will be hundreds of people, throngs of people, listening to this character with his soapbox up there, waving his arms and just shouting away. And no one can quite put it together like some of those British religious fanatics. They are something to behold. So Paul is warning about this type of thing. What's he warning about? Holy days? The Sabbath? No. Traditions of men, philosophies of men, vain deceits, and the elements, the base earthy things, the ideas of men. For in him, verse 9, speaking of Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. See, if you have him, if you're in Christ, you are complete. Now, what is Christ going to do? That isn't the doctrine of the churches that I'm expounding, where if you love Christ, if you like him, if you use his name, if you adore him and you speak of him, that you don't do anything. You don't go to Sabbath services. You don't go to the annual holy days. That's the way they tend to look at it. That isn't what I'm saying at all, because Jesus Christ of Nazareth himself is the one who commanded the apostles, wait in Jerusalem and you will receive power after that. The Spirit of God has come upon you from the Father on high. Why could not Jesus, when he came back and made that breathless statement, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, go you therefore into all the world, why didn't he just say, I right now bequeath to you that power? He had been to heaven, his sacrifice had been accepted, he had come back to the earth, he appeared to them along the road to Emmaus. He appeared to them up in Galilee. He appeared to them down in Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul wrote that he appeared to 500 brethren at once. He appeared to Thomas and said, Touch me, handle me, see that it is I and not a spirit, for a spirit hath not flesh and bone. Why did he wait? Well, we've gone over that in the Bible study, but obviously there was a great reason why Almighty God put in the Bible, Acts 2, verse 1 and 2, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, and they were all together in one place, in one accord, then suddenly, as a rushing mighty wind from heaven, 
The power of God, the Spirit of God came down and even gave a visible manifestation, and the church was born by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the apostles at one moment on an annual holy day of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, called Pentecost. The word Pentecost, from pen, like penny, means tenth of a dime, or we can take pen, which is uh, fifth, pentagon, or pentagonal, is a five-sided uh, geometric design. It means 50th. Count 50 or 50th, and is the 50th day after the morrow following the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, during the Days of Unleavened Bread. And we can count that up for you, and you can see it very easily just by turning to the 23rd chapter of Leviticus and counting it up. So, the day of Pentecost, to count 50, the 50th day following that ancient ceremony revealed to the Israelites was very specifically and meticulously pointed out by Jesus Christ, and it was a requirement for the apostles, tarry, wait, stay there in Jerusalem until the promise from the Father come down. And when did it come? On the day of Pentecost. The day that is the birthday of the church, the day that begins with the setting of the sun, as this weekly Sabbath passes away, so comes the day of Pentecost tomorrow. Now, you are complete in him, which is the head of all governments, principalities, and powers in whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Jeremiah 4.4, read that one. In putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. Does that mean you're not to be baptized? Well, of course not. It means you are to be baptized. And when you were baptized, your life is buried with him, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. And you, you Gentile Christians, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he given life, enlivened, quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now, here's what he did to you and for you. He blotted out the bond written in ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and just took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled powers, governments, principalities, and powers, not only referring to his face-to-face -face confrontation with Satan the devil, but the fact that he, as the future king of kings, has triumphed over all governments of the earth, and he is that stone symbolically cut out without hands, Daniel 2 and the verse 44, which will finally become a great mountain to fill the whole world. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man, here's the theme again, don't let some other human being, some character with some vain deceit, some philosophy, some rudiment of the world, some elementary idea of his own, let no man, therefore, judge you in meat or in drink. Isn't it funny how they want to mess with your food? Isn't it funny how people come along with a philosophy about whether you ought to eat meat or not? Isn't it funny how many vegetarians there are who claim to have a biblical reason for their belief? Or in drink? Does that apply to this part of the country? Well, if I want to buy a six-pack, where do I get it in Tyler? It's not against the law of me to do that, but i got to go to Cherokee County to do it. I sure can't do it in Tyler. What about blue laws? And some of the blue laws I just don't even believe. I didn't know that in supermarkets, for example, you can buy a hammer but not a nail on Sunday. That some of the dumbest laws you ever heard of in your life that even affect whether or not you could imbibe a drink on a certain day. Now, some churches, of course, say that even to look at alcoholic beverages is, is, is maybe tempting the Lord. You're not to look on the wine when it is red, and they get all excited about that. And so, of course, even today, some of these same teachings are alive and well and extant in church organizations. And within and among Christian people, oftentimes men do judge other men and women about our eating and our drinking and our personal way of conducting ourselves, and we begin to come up with a religious idea about it and to judge one another. So let no man judge you. So far, so good. I don't intend letting anybody judge me. How about you? The Bible says don't let a man judge you in regard to meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day. Now read it the way it is. Are you going to let a man judge you because you keep the holy days? Should a man judge you concerning the holy days? Let no man judge you in respect of a holy day. Is that telling you that God is doing away with the annual holy days when the whole theme of this chapter is Paul telling you beware of being spoiled? Beware of elementary, earthy, rudimentary, stupid, vain deceits and traditions of men. Let no man judge you in regard to these holy days. 
or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days. Now, the new moon is observed and is, of course, still a matter of the calendar and those who are responsible for determining when the annual holy days will be. And the observation of God's months is going to return in the millennium. Today, we don't really, quote, observe, end quote, because most of us are unaware of the passage of a new moon because we're dealing with a Roman calendar that says this is the first of the month when probably it's nowhere near the first of the month. The first of the month is with the new moon. And it's very difficult to tell exactly down to the day. That has to be done, as you read in the article, if you read it, a very technically done and very well-researched article in the last issue of the International News. But notice lumping together the Sabbath days. Now, this scripture makes it all the more strange as to why Sabbatarian organizations who do believe in the keeping of the seventh-day Sabbath would not believe in the keeping of the annual holy days when obviously they're both lumped together in the same passage. Which are what? Done away? Of the old covenant? Passed out of use? Nailed to the cross? No. Which are a shadow of things to come. Now again, if I had a blackboard, here's the way this verse really reads, and other translations might help show you this. Beginning with the word which, you should put a parenthesis. You close parenthesis after the word come. And then it reads like this. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day, the new moon or the Sabbath days, but the body of Christ. Let no man judge you, but let the body of Christ do the determining, do the deciding, do the judging. Notice the little word is. doesn't make sense. The body is of Christ. What's that mean? doesn't mean anything, does it? It's just an ambiguous, rather strange-sounding few words. But the translators added the word is in italics. The King James Bible, always the italic words are added, and translators sometimes make mistakes. It actually reads, let no man judge you but the body of Christ. That's the sense of the English construction of the verse. A man should not be that which does the determining, the setting of the times, the judging of these matters, but the body of Christ. In other words, the church. The church does the determining. The church does the judging, not a man, not some human being who comes to you with a vain philosophy, some deceitful idea, a tradition, or the rudiments of the earth. Verse 18, let no man beguile you. Look at this emphasis all through this chapter. Don't let a man spoil you. Let no man judge you. Don't let a man beguile you of your reward. Take away your salvation. In a voluntary humility, what's that? What's voluntary humility? I met a guy in Jerusalem one time, a Protestant pastor, and he was the first fellow I ever heard make a joke of this thing about humility. He said, oh, I majored in humility in college. I met him in the garden there, the garden tomb, and he introduced himself. He'd heard me many times on the air and told me that he was a pastor of such and such a church and was kind of laughing and talking and said that he had majored in humility. Now, voluntary humility, voluntary is not involuntary, it's voluntary. That means you determine to do it. Now, your lungs, your breathing process, are both involuntary and voluntary. They're both. Most of the time, you're utterly unconscious of the fact you're breathing. The minute I start talking about it, you become conscious of it. But before I started talking about it, you weren't conscious of it. You were breathing away. Your mind wasn't on the fact that you're breathing. Right now, it's on the fact that you're breathing, and so you probably are taking a little deeper breath. But your heart, you can't do anything about. It's involuntary. It's just going all the time. But you know... If I were to voluntarily be humble right now, I would change my tone of voice. I would change the manner in which I hold my hands. And I might say, let us kneel together. And I'd get down on my knees. Now, that would be voluntary humility. And I see ministers and nuns and, and people like that do that all the time. Voluntary humility is going through some sort of ridiculous human uh, form or ceremony which impresses other people as being humble. Let no man beguile you, deceive you, trick you out of your reward by getting you wrapped up in and involved in voluntary humility, trying to out-humble one another, and worshiping of angels, worshiping of angels. Now, you know, God condemns the worship of the host of heavens. 
And Satan, the devil, was called, Thou art the cherub that covereth. And we know that the host of the heavens are pictured in some of the ancient monuments, and I won't go into that. But believe it or not, fallen angels, demons, spirit beings under the control of Satan, the devil, are absolutely worshipped by the religions of this world. And oftentimes people toy around with seances and with visions and dreams and voices and strange extra physical uh, and extraterrestrial phenomena, and they don't know that they're intruding into another world, another dimension, a spirit world that is very, very dangerous indeed. So don't let a man come along and trick you out of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, a spirit world, a dark world over here, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. You ever known people like that? I watch them on television every now and then. They are there. They're alive and well, and they're over church organizations all over the place. People will come up with some of the craziest, far-out, weirdest, dumb, ding-a-ling, addle-headed, slope-headed, you know, bug-eyed, weird religious ideas you've ever heard in your life, and for every one of those ideas there's a following. Now what is the date today? This is what, the 7th? By the 28th of this month there's going to be a great disappointment come over a whole flock of people in Tucson, Arizona. There was a big major article in the Tucson newspaper the other day. Some ding-a-ling church type out there, some preacher, has put together all kinds of prophecies backward, crossways, and in juxtaposition to each other. Come up with the weirdest fruit basket full of addle-headed prophetic ideas you ever saw, and has decided that the rapture is taking place on the 26th of this month. Or it's 28th, Keith, you remember? 28th? 28th of this month. Guess what his people are doing and have already done? Sold their homes, sold their businesses, and just waiting it out. And they're being interviewed by the paper. Well, what happens if it doesn't happen? Well, it's, I don't, can't answer that question because we don't even think that. It's what do you mean? Well, what, what, what will you do if it, if it does happen? That's our question. And here they are, standing there just waiting for the day. You know, I wish I could go to Tucson and sit there and kind of watch the expression on those people's faces on the 29th. Well, what are you going to do now, folks? I mean, you know, you wiped out your home, you wiped out your business, and you gave some money to this church organization, and, and you didn't get whooshed away here today, and uh, now what happens? Well, I guess we're going to have to go back and kind of restudy things here, you know. They'll probably come up with some reason about, well, I, it, it, it did happen in heaven, or it happened over in Lebanon, or happened somewhere else, but they'll save face. There was a guy that left the WCG, and be, he was a minister. Uh, and uh, still is uh, functioning as the head of his own organization. And for a while there, he was just setting different dates. It seemed like every few months he had some weird prophecy was going to happen, and, and it was going to happen, and people, oh, it's going to happen. Didn't happen, but they didn't leave him. He's still a good prophet. It's just that his batting average is rather poor. He hasn't hit a right one yet, but we know that someday he's going to. There was this religious nut that said that the auditorium in Pasadena and the student center with the bird sculpture were going to be uprooted from the earth and fly in formation to Jerusalem and land over there. And all this that people, ah, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. But it didn't happen, but that didn't deter them. They still had faith in this character, still had faith in him. He came to some of our church services. He had a harem. He believed in, uh, you know, you know. we say jokingly, a lot of the men love to have him prove that to us, and I'm just saying that for the fun of it. My wife is here, and she's going to kill me later, but uh, but he believed in, in uh, not bigamy, he believed in trigonometry. No, I'm just kidding. He believed in, uh, in polygamy, you know. He could have, what, five? I think he took off after the Arabs. They say that, uh, I'm sorry, I should say Arabs. Uh, they, uh, they can have five wives, according to the Muslim religion. And I think that he saw where David had about six or so, and so he had this whole flock of, uh, of, of women for a while, and, and they believed that. So people can beguile other people. I really am, am convinced that for every weird idea there is a ready-made following. Let no man beguile you in this voluntary humility and intruding into things, a dark other world, a worshiping of angels, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Have you read one word in that passage of Scripture that tells you the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Passover are done away? And yet we have read in verse 14 through verse 16 the favorite text of many of the Protestant churches that tell you the annual holy days of God are not to be kept today. Now let's go on and read the rest of it here. Not holding the head, that's Christ, 
from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourished, ministered, and knit together, increases with the increase of God. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the elements, the rudiments of the world, and that really is sin, it's everything that impedes you and holds you back, it's the superstitions and the stupidity and the dark ideas and the misconceptions and the misknowledge and the false assumptions of the past, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Now, what in the world are ordinances? Parenthesis. Here's what ordinances are. Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using. Do you need some other interpretation of the word ordinances when the holy word of God gives you a parenthetical statement of exactly what he means by ordinances right there? Ordinances. Now, if you were to go out of here down to Broadway and drive toward town, and about a block before you get to Front Street, I think is where it is, on the left side, you will see a church. And that church has a beautiful, it's really a well-built building, red brick, and has some tile up on the top, beautiful little cupola up there, cross with a funny-looking thing on the top of it, and, uh, you know, the, the beautiful arched doors and everything. And if you were to go in there and sit down with the leader of that church and ask him, I want you to help show me, you know, how uh, you go through your church service. You better take your lunch. It's going to be a long time, because he's a Catholic priest. And the way he conducts services, he goes through all sorts of things. You've got to put on these vestments just so, and this white thing around here, and he's got to come out, and the altar boy has certain tasks, and they got to light just so many candles, and the people have to say the rosary, and they got to dip in the holy water and do things with their hands, and kneel and genuflect and so on. And I told a joke, you know, and I won't go over that again, about the guy trying to become a, a new Catholic and his girlfriend. But it, it is true, there are religions all over the world, right here in Tyler and around us, and there are people who will go through that kind of a ritual in their lives, believe it or not, even having to do with the way they dress to go to church services. Now, the Greek word, Mr. Dart's gone through it a couple of times recently, katha, which means down in place and in time, and balo, which means hanging down or like a veil, and that's the meaning of the word in 1 Corinthians 11 having to do with the length of hair of women, which should not have been like the temple prostitutes were, shaved as bald as a cue ball. Why in the world men thought that was sexy, I will never know. It's carried on down in the case of the Catholic religion today, apparently, and uh, but they cover their heads with a, a white, you know, the, the, the flying, uh, the white headdress. But they shaved their heads, the temple prostitutes did, and because a lot of the women were shorn and clipped short, the Apostle Paul took issue with that. Well, the Greek word means a hanging veil and a veil-like effect of a woman, woman's hair. And now my head, you know, thankfully, it's a little thin here and there, but it's still covered. What part of my head is not covered? I could turn around, just the back of my neck, my ears, that's all. But the top and sides are fairly well covered. Now, what's different between my covering and a woman's covering is that a woman's covering is softer and around the neck than the ears and so on, and gives her a kind of a soft, feminine look. And so it's very easy to understand in 1 Corinthians 11 what the Apostle Paul is talking about. But you take that up with an Adventist lady who is dressing on Saturday morning to go to church and see how far you get because she's going to have a hat on. Now, one time we were going to go into Il Duomo, which is the great basilica in Milano, and this was the place where the Pope before this one, and before that one, I guess, had, had been the archbishop. And I saw him ordain about 27 priests on that day. And as uh, my brother and I were walking up, and Cheryl was there, my wife and my father and my mother, this, uh, this whore, this prostitute, came up and, and solicited us. And then a couple of pimps on the steps of this huge church came up. They want a girl. And it was just a throng of people, just teeming people, hundreds of people, and pigeons, and people feeding the pigeons. And we had pictures of my mother there and, and the flocks of pigeons and everything. And we were going to enter this huge, big Catholic church, and here were pimps and prostitutes openly soliciting passers-by on the front steps. My wife started to enter in with me, and this fellow in the priestly robes said, I'm sorry. You, you may not go into this place of God because you have a short-sleeved blouse on and you don't have a veil on your head. So what did you do, honey? You had to go and get a little shawl, didn't you? She had to either buy one. I think they even have little stands for American tourists and other people so you can get righteous, so you can get in the proper dress and get holy to go into this place if you can fight your way through the pimps and prostitutes to get into this church and be real holy in there with a veil. You've got to have a veil over your head and you've got to have a shawl around your shoulders. And then, you know, because her arms were obviously, grotesquely, uh, lewd. Now, you figure that out.
You figure that out. That, that is amazing to me, just amazing to me. Are there religions in the world that reach out and grab people's minds and hold them in their sway that preach to their parishioners, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using, mean nothing, have nothing whatsoever to do with true righteousness after the doctrines, the commandments, and the doctrines of men. So what are we talking about in Colossians 2? And we've gone through it word by word, taking our time, really expounding it. You're hearing it. Maybe you're taking notes. Maybe you're just looking at it. But will anybody ever be able to deceive you again, to tell you that verse 14 and those ordinances mean the holy days of God? Or do you know now that they don't, but they mean these rudiments and these vain deceits and philosophies of paganism? And that the Apostle Paul is upholding the way of Christ and the way of God, certainly not doing away with the day of Pentecost and the holy days, but saying very clearly, as we'll come back to in a few minutes, that they are what? A shadow of things to come, including the weekly Sabbath. Which things, verse 23, have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship. They appear to be intelligent, they appear to be wise in this in this determination of your own will to take your body and bend it on one knee or to stoop over or crawl five miles down the main central thoroughfare to the Basilica del Virgen de Guadalupe in Mexico City, leaving a trail of blood. Looks very good. You're suffering, you're cutting yourself in will worship. It looks good. It's a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body. Like the Pharisee, I fast twice in the week. Like the Catholic priest, I'm not married. Sure, they have religions like that, the neglecting of the body, the people who flagellate themselves. I like to help them over in Iran, some of those characters. Walking down the street, they're doing it too lightly. Got this little kind of a broom thing, slapping themselves on the back, screaming, you know, down with America, the great Satan, and so on. I, I like, I'm, I'm just kidding, of course, but we see people going to the extent of actually flagellating their own bodies, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. The margin is better. It says, these are not of any value against the indulgence of the flesh. They mean nothing. They have no efficacy. They're not of any value. Let's take a look now at Ephesians 2 and verse 11 right quickly and give you the other proof text with this regard. Ephesians 2 and beginning in verse 11. I won't read all of this, but again, he is writing to the church at Ephesus, Gentile Christians, wherefore remember that you in the time past, Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you, you Gentiles, were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, again, looking forward to the new covenant when he will put his spirit in the hearts and the minds of all humanity from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, because even as Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. And the oracles, the laws, the covenants, all of those things, including the observation of the calendar and the determining of the time of God's holy days, were given into the hands of the Jews. And they're still there to this day. The Jewish Encyclopedia article calendar is the repository of the greatest collection of knowledge and understanding about the calendar that there is in the world, very likely. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who has made both one, Gentile and Jew, and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And what was that middle wall of partition? Between a Jew and a Gentile. Now, is this referring to the sins of the Gentiles? No. This is not what Christ broke down. It was not a sin between a Jew and a Gentile. It was racism. And what was the most blatant form and ceremony of that racism? It was circumcision the most obvious form. But beyond that, it was the entire series of rituals, of ordinances, of ablutions, of washings and scrubbings, the busy Pharisee that looked like an otter with a carrot and couldn't get the thing clean enough and finally rubs the whole clear off of it and has only got the core left. And finally, they wore the pots and pans and the vessels down by so much scrubbing and shining that they just were, were you know, a shadow, paper thin maybe. And I like to cover that from time to time because it must look so ludicrous to God. God says over and over again in the beginning, I spoke not to them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. He said, you can't burn enough bulls for me. You can't sacrifice enough animals for me. You can kill all of the herds of all of the Lebanon and it won't do me any good, he says. So the rituals of the Jewish religion, of the ceremony of circumcision, the sacrificial animals, the washing and all of that, was a great barrier between Gentiles and Jews. Christ did away with that. It isn't essential. We don't do it. 
But I'll guarantee you, if I began preaching it, I could get a following. If I don't, don't kid yourself. I mean, I know that. I know that if I went out here and began preaching, we need to sacrifice a lamb every Passover. I could get a following. I could be lying. But people are going to follow the weirdest ideas you can come up with. There may clue me in. Are there people who do that today? I mean, are there religions that still sacrifice animals? I, I imagine there are. I, I don't know there are in this country, but I wouldn't be a bit surprised. But you will find that happening in other countries, where people still. You know that one time, well, I, I'm going to shock some people. Are any of you mothers here had babies? Yeah, there's some people with babies in the last few years. You didn't need to circumcise your boys. Now, I said that in the church one time, and I thought people were going to walk out on me. Because we, you don't believe the arguments we used to get into about whether the Ross Ring method, or whether different methods were usable, whether a baby ought to be circumcised on the Sabbath, or should you go ahead and do it on the seventh day, if the eighth day after birth was going to be a Sabbath. And I mean the questions in Bible study and the different ministerial types. Well, now, I, don't, I would think it would be better not to do it on the Sabbath. I couldn't believe my ears. Here is the word of God. Circumcision is nothing. But see, they say, well, there is some physical thing having to do with the circulation of blood, or the baby's nerves are kind of dead on the eighth day. Doesn't hurt him as bad on the eighth day as it does the seventh or the ninth. Listen, do you remember what happened on the thirteenth day of your life? How about the ninth month and tenth day of your life? You don't remember anything back then. You're not going to remember it anymore on the eighth day, and you will the first day. Now, if you're determined you're going to have your boy baby circumcised, so okay, do it. But don't kid yourself that it's making you or the baby righteous before God, because my Bible and yours says circumcision is nothing. But believe you me, the members of God's church made that into a ritual and would rigorously try to figure out exactly how to get down there and have that done right to the hour, the end of the 24th hour, you know, eight-day period. And it just is absolutely unessential. So as I think of how easy it is for people to want to drift in, even today, you know, we're looking at old pagan Gentiles who were used to temple services and idolatry and sacrificial animals and even human sacrifice in some crazy societies. But, you know, sometimes we want to think, well, this is old worldly, this is old ancient first century stuff. Well, there are people around today that will practice the same kind of religions if you let them. So notice the middle wall of partition that Christ abolished in his flesh, the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances that we just saw, are what? Touch not, taste not, handle not. For to make himself of twain, of the both, one new man, new element, new body, so making peace, that he might reconcile both, both Jew and Gentile, unto God in one body, by the cross, having slain the enmity, the antagonism, the resentment thereby, and came and preached peace unto you which were afar off. Is there one word there that tells you not to keep the annual holy days? Now, what is the law of commandments? You know that many, many church organizations believe that means the Ten Commandments of God. But the word contained, in this case, the uh, translators knew that the Greek expression means exactly what it says, that the law of commandments contained in ordinances has to do with the book of the law that we see in the third chapter of Galatians, and those rituals that were added on to the Israelites that are explained very thoroughly in the book of Hebrews, until the coming of Jesus Christ, the schoolmaster, the taskmaster, that could never make the bearer thereof perfect, that the blood of bulls and goats and a cleansing of brazen vessels and so on does not remove sin, and we know that it was the book of the law came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them which were nigh. For through him we both have access, both Jew and Gentile, by one Spirit unto the Father. Now I want to show you very quickly over in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 24, exactly what Jesus Christ did cause to cease. Many people misunderstand this scripture. It's not essential for you to believe it the way I know it happens to be true, to be saved, I suppose, but it might let you miss out on a little bit of understanding of prophecy. The entire subject, beginning in verse 24 of Daniel 9, is the 70 weeks prophecy, and the thrust of this prophecy is a figuring or a calculation of a certain amount of time until what? Till the finishing of transgression, verse 24, and to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the holy place. That's saying the atonement work 
the blood of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of humankind, the accessibility to the temple, the finishing of all prophecy and the wrapping up of the plan of God, and the anointing of the temple, the eternal will come suddenly to his temple, the setting up of the kingdom of God. Now no one understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem under the Messiah the Prince, who is going to do all that, make reconciliation for sin and bring in everlasting righteousness, shall be a certain period of time. I won't go into that because that's a different matter. Verse 26, after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And incidentally, it brings in about this evil prince. What is the subject and who is the principle of the subject of this prophecy? It's the 70 weeks prophecy, make a reconciliation, forgive sins, establish the kingdom of God. Messiah shall be cut off. And he, verse 27, is referring to the Messiah shall confirm the covenant. That language can only mean the confirmation of the covenant promises of Jesus Christ of Nazareth of the New Testament, with many for one week, and that is the full seven-year ministry of Jesus Christ, and in the midst of the week, and it was exactly on a Wednesday, as well as exactly three and one-half literal years, when he was cut off, he shall cause what? The commandments of God, the holy days of God, the weekly Sabbath of God. No, he shall cause the sacrifice and the washings, the oblations, to cease. And because of the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the time of the ultimate consummation of all things. And that determined will be poured out upon the desolator, or the one who is the man of sin who makes everything desolate. What did Christ nail to the cross? Nothing. He didn't do any nailing at all. But what he took with him on the cross is our sins. It was the burden between the Jews and the Gentiles of washings and meat and drink offerings, but it certainly was not nailing to the cross the annual holy days or the weekly Sabbath of God. If you want to read Hebrews 9 and verse 1 to verse 12, another text that shows you exactly what some of these ordinances were, read Isaiah 59 and verse 2 and ask, what is it that separates us, that had to be removed, that separated us from God? the middle wall between you and God, well, he shows that it is our sins. It certainly is not God's annual holy day. So remember, Colossians 2 says very clearly that these days, including the weekly Sabbath, are what? They are shadows of the future, shadows of things to come. Now, just like those who stood in the shadow of the ark and couldn't understand, they were standing in the shadow of the only vessel that could save their lives that was in a sense a type of physical salvation, you might say, because Moses had a mission, I should say that Noah had a mission to save all of humanity, the eight souls of that time. Moses did too, and it's still the same type, in a sense, of the two who were representations of Christ, and therefore the salving or the saving of all of humanity. The shadows go just like this. There are seven holy days and seven feasts, and a Passover, obviously, a sacrifice for sin. The days of unleavened bread, coming out of sin, putting sin out of our lives, overcoming. Pentecost, the fact that it is the first fruits of salvation, only a tiny handful, and that this is not the only day of salvation, but the millennium, and finally, the great white throne judgment of the greatest days of salvation of all. Trumpets, that Christ is coming, and also the blowing of many trumpets. Atonement, Satan will finally be bound and guilt placed where it belongs. The Feast of Tabernacles, a type of the kingdom of God and the government of God on the earth for seven, not eight days. The last day, a separate feast, but tacked right on the end, is the last great white throne judgment and the final resurrection to judgment of billions of human beings. And it answers all the questions. How are we saved? Why should we worry about being saved? What is man? What is the destiny of man? What are we doing on this earth? What is the program of God? What is his purpose? What is he working out on this earth? What has he got in mind for the 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, for a thousand years from now? And the only way you can really have that deep understanding of the purpose and the program and the plan of God is by understanding what the shadow stands for. If you see a shadow cast upon the, the, the wall or the grass over here, over here somewhere is the reality. There is bright light, sun shining, and it is casting a shadow. It doesn't mean because there is a shadow there is no reality. The fact that you're observing a shadow means there is a reality. Now, the 14th chapter of Zechariah shows, as I've said so many times, that the very first command the super king, king of kings, is going to give to all the world is you go up to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. I don't understand. I, Garner Ted Armstrong, do not understand the attitude, the motivation. 
I can't understand how some people can get all technically messed up, confused, and uh, can, can just be misled by teachers to where their minds don't really come out of the, the, the state of befuddlement to where they can see the pure and the clear truth about God's annual holy days. But I don't understand the motivation. I don't understand why. If Christ were standing on a mountain and the sun behind him casting a shadow, the place I'd want to be is right straight in that shadow. How are you going to find the reality? Follow the shadow. If you see a big swath of shadow across your yard, you follow, you're going to bump straight into the tree, aren't you? The shadow casts the image of the reality, and you're going to find the reality. Your Bible in Colossians 2 says that the weekly Sabbath is a shadow, and it is of the millennium, as are the new moons, and you can look in the last chapters of Isaiah. You can see that God's calendar, God's pure language, God's method of keeping time are going to be instituted in the millennium and that the annual holy days are a shadow of things to come. So I hope you will never let anyone deceive you. And I will say to you, as Paul did, let no man beguile you of your reward by telling you for one minute that you don't need to go to church on Pentecost.